Hi, I'm Alex. I'm Kyler. And I'm Marcos. Welcome to the Teens Age podcast where we talk about our opinions and interests. So today we have Marcos on. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm a student in Madrid. I go to an international school. I was actually born here in Spain, but I lived over in the U.S. for a while. I have a dual citizenship and uh, mostly I'm here to I'm here as someone who advocates heavily for socialism and leftist policy. Uh, I'm here to talk about that a little bit, uh, hopefully give some insight to people whether or not you disagree with me. I think there's a lot to learn. And yeah, I'm glad to be on here. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on the podcast. It is very much appreciated. We're going to start off the basis of people who are like teenagers that might be kind of like us and don't know a ton. I think a good way to start is also, well, I mean, we all live in capitalism. I think pointing out the flaws, I think that would be a good way to start before we get hop right into fixing it. Because I think a lot of the, the aspects of the definitions of socialism are kind of lost if you don't know what's going on with capitalism. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I think we all know some problems with capitalism, but do we want to <laughs> <laughs> put some labels on it? Well, sure. I think uh, mainly, I think Richard Wolff, he's an economist, a socialist economist. Uh, he had this very famous debate and he at the beginning, I think he pointed he pointed out uh, three different flaws that I think pretty well represent why people are frustrated with capitalism as a system. So for one, it's unstable. Uh, secondly, it's unequal. And third, it's just undemocratic. Uh, and once you really realize what's within all of those three complaints, that's when you can get into, well, what kind of systems can fix these problems? And how can we progress forward? So for one, it's unstable. I mean, a big basis of capitalism is the idea of infinite growth in a finite planet. There's finite resources, Infinite growth on a finite planet means taking shortcuts. A good way to look at this is the major crises that have happened just within the U.S., whether it's uh, 1929, 2008, even now in 2020, admittedly now do more to the pandemic. But even before, even the crisis now has elements of banking that have caused a lot of strain uh, in people's lives as a direct result of this infinite growth uh, goal within capitalism. So let's look at those crises. Uh, both in 1929 and 2008, the crises were born from this idea of, well, it, the economy can't possibly collapse. Uh, in 2008, uh, we all know what happened. The banks invested a lot. Well, not invested a lot, but offered a lot of subprime loans, uh, went heavily into this market, kept uh, well, subprime mortgages, uh, and what happens is that when you build an economy on, you keep trying to seek profits on unstable principle, unstable economic principles, this causes problems. And eventually when it collapsed, it collapsed hard. And the people that came down weren't the owners of the big banks. It was the people. On average, uh, within every econ- uh, a capitalist country, uh, every 47 years, there's an economic downturn. Uh, and this isn't due to external factors. It's built in flaws. Uh, that are caused well by this economic system uh, that values profit and values very 
risky decision making uh, at the very top uh, because of this very centralized authoritarian system that we have for our economic uh, firms. Uh, and I mean, this kind of leads into the second issue with capitalism, the uh, inequality. It's unequal. Uh, within capitalism, you ultimately have a fundamental polarization of wealth, right? What happens is money goes to the extreme. Money goes all the way up to the top. You have people, I mean, we've seen it before with trickle-down economics from Reagan, uh, this idea of money being pulled up at the top, and then maybe it'll trickle down, uh, hit everyone else, you know? Uh, it doesn't work. Uh, and ultimately, what we've seen out of laissez-faire capitalism is wealth polarization. Our current inequality in the U.S. is worse than ever before. Uh, it, to put it into perspective, it's at the level of Egypt during the time of the, of the pharaohs and the slaves. I mean, it's pretty insane, the inequality that happens over the span of time when laissez-faire capitalism is allowed to continue. The thing is, uh, it doesn't happen immediately. Uh, What's funny enough, what's, what's interesting is that you look at the countries that have been capitalist the longest, uh, the Netherlands, for example, uh, they have more wealth inequality than almost any other country. Uh, that's due to a variety of factors, but part of that is generational wealth that arises from capitalism that it passed down from father to son, father to son, from generation to generation. And you propagate these, these family, uh, essentially royal families, right? Uh, and this is a, another aspect of how wealth becomes so polarized in our economies. Uh, currently, people are working, despite record low unemployment, they're working longer hours than ever before. They're, people are working multiple jobs, and there's the lowest wages we've ever had. Like If you adjust for inflation, I mean, lowest wages since we've had minimum wage, of course, during the Industrial Revolution, it was a little better a, a, a little worse, I uh, mean to say. Uh, but where we're at right now, we're seeing the effects of what people call, what economists call a late stage capitalism. It's an extremely unequal result of generations of wealth polarization, wealth inequality mounting up and compiling. I mean, you have social democracies, which I guess I'll cover later. I'll try to explain that to clarify because the difference there between social democracy and something like socialism is lost to some people. I think that should be explained. Uh, but social democracies do attempt to fix this after the fact, uh, which is good and it does help people. But I think ultimately what we also have to look at is the core flaws within the system that allow for this multiplication of wealth. This idea of, well, if you're if you're living or you're going paycheck to paycheck, you can't invest. You don't have capital of which you can multiply and get more. Uh, people argue that over generations, yeah, there is some social mobility, but the reality is that for the majority of people, social mobility in our current system is just impossible. No matter how smart you are, no matter how hardworking you are, unless you think Jeff Bezos is working a hundred thousand times harder than everyone else in the system. Our current system is not a meritocracy at its fundamental core. Uh, now, another aspect of this un uh, inequality is really our political process as well. Uh, we've seen what lobbying does to our political process. Uh, right now, well, especially in the US, but even in other Western democracies, uh, lobbying and special interest groups have led to a, demo a democracy that isn't really a democracy. 
Uh, I mean, the term that we use in socialist circles is a, a bourgeois democracy. Uh, but in colloquial terms, it just means a democracy where every voice isn't equal. Uh, there have been plenty of studies on this. So there's one very famous one by uh, Princeton and Northwestern. Uh, they tried to see, well, how much political power does every individual have, right? How much within a democracy, we all admit everyone deserves the same vote. So what is that really in practice? What are we getting? And what they saw is that the wealthy 10% have exponentially more representation within government than the bottom 90, uh, especially the special interest groups and the corporations. Uh, they looked at what if a large corporation or a wealthy individual wants a law passed, regardless of which political party they're affiliated with, there is a 60% chance that it will pass. And if they don't want a law that is currently in the works, there is pretty much a 0% chance that it'll pass. Uh, and then they looked at everyday voters. And what they saw is that if one in 10 people support a law, that law has a 30% chance of passing uh, when nine of 10 people don't support it. And then they looked at issues where nine out of 10 people uh, agreed that a law should be passed. And it also had a 30% chance of passing. Uh, <laughs> what, what you see here is that in reality, uh, our political process is one that, well, when we require politicians to be funded so heavily and when votes are, when our voting system is done in the way that it is right now, uh, you have these systems where money talks and money gives you more representation with, within government. And I think everyone can agree that that's extremely anti-democratic. Uh, and the worst thing is, I mean, this study doesn't even take into account uh, the idea of manufacturing consent. Uh, manufacturing consent was a famous book written by Noam Chomsky. I'm not sure if you are familiar with it. Uh, it talks about the influence that media has on the public, right? You have an issue where you can prove that materially no one benefits from it. Uh, yet from media and from direct investment, they analyzed investment into uh, media from big corporations and special interest groups. And they saw that people's minds will be changed. The referendum, you could have a referendum where a basic minimum wage doesn't get passed, even though economically it makes sense. But the information that tells people that it's making sense is drowned out by a paid for information that tells people that it doesn't make sense and that it's not economically feasible and that it, it won't help you in the end when it really will. Uh, and I think that's a huge problem with our current economic system, that it allows for this anti-democratic, undemocratic system. Uh, just the, I mean, I can give more figures on, on, on what corporations do. I mean, you can see they, they do spend 34 times more, corporations alone spend 34 times more on lobbying than public interest groups or unions or any of those. Uh, really, it's crazy. I mean, just for the money that, Corporations spend on lobbying, that's $6 million for every single member of Congress uh, per year. Uh, this is crazy stuff that I don't think any person on, on even either Republicans or Democrats are really trying to solve. Uh, a few, uh, every once in a while, you get some member of a cabinet that is willing to work on it or try to make reforms. But it doesn't pass. And that's ultimately where I think a lot of frustration has come from in our current system. And the thing is, you can tie that to, to uh, our economy. It's always there in every Western uh, capitalist country. And I think that's something we deeply need to analyze about, well, what's wrong with capitalism? 
fundamentally. Uh, and then, I mean, I mean, also beyond, also about undemocraticness within uh, our economy, I think beyond our political system, I think, and this is the major point of what socialism tries to fix is uh, the authoritarian nature of the workplace. Uh, workplaces right now are privately owned. Uh, and I know we've all been conditioned that that's the only way to do it. Uh, but the reality is that right now, most people spend, people spend most of their life in the workplace. And we have a huge epidemic with people, the term wage slaves, uh, people that feel like they have no voice in their own life. Uh, maybe they have a boss that treats them like garbage. Uh, or they have no voice. Uh, they feel as though the company is taking horrible direction. I mean, that happened when, for example, uh, the banking sector, when we had those crises, this is something that would also fix that instability that we were talking about. Uh, it's the undemocratic nature of the workplace. Uh, when you spend so much time within an institution, uh, the idea is that you deserve a voice in how it's run. Uh, it may seem like a major change and it doesn't have to be done right away. But the reality is that our current system, the way we run it, uh, we run it like kingdoms. We run it like empires controlled by maybe a single owner or by a board of shareholders acting as an oligarchy, uh, a royal family, the aristocracy making decisions on behalf of the whole country. And what I see often is that when people argue for this anti-democratic authoritarian nature, autocratic nature of, of the workplaces, they often end up arguing against the concept of democracy itself. They argue that, well, it's not efficient. Uh, people aren't smart enough to control their workplace. And, it, and I think it's things that, I mean, we worked past in the 18th century, and I think we can work past them again. Uh, and that's mostly what I see as the problem with capitalism. Those are the main flaws, uh, primarily. Awesome. It was a lot of information. Yeah, it was. It was great. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I like it because of like what you said at the end, especially uh, like one of the things that people argue about communism, especially is that like it's been tested and it hasn't worked. Um, and people say that yeah. there's like no true communist society, but there's also no true like democratic society. I feel like like the U.S. has tried to be really democratic, but their goal is to only listen to the voices they want to listen to. So Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, especially in the founding and everything when people are like, oh, yeah, we want to listen to everyone. No, they didn't. Like, <laughs> no, that's that's uh, the problem. It's built in. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we could go on for a long time about uh, <laughs> yeah. democracy within capitalism, uh, about the American Revolution. Uh, I feel like the criticisms that are levied against leftism uh, are often ignorant of the material conditions required to start a successful society up. Uh, capitalism had a lot of failed experiments, like a lot of them. Uh, it didn't just start like, boom, America, capitalism, baby. Like capitalism started up in many small towns. That's how it started, the small Italian city states. And a lot of them got crushed by feudalism, the ruling power structure at the time. Uh, and it took a lot of luck. It took a lot of, uh, it l again, lucky conditions. Uh, I mean, look at America, for example. America was, as you could say, arguably the first really successful capitalist country. And even then, who was going to stop them? 
uh, isolated on a continent, super rich in uh, natural resources, super diversified economy. And even then, when they revolted after the revolution, they barely made it past. You know, like they had a hard time. If you look at those early days, uh, America was not it wasn't a perfect experiment from the start. It took a lot of work. Uh, and you look at even immediately after America's revolution uh, in South America, for example, uh, you have a lot of failed experiments. Uh, for example, uh, the Federal Republic of Central America. Uh, that was a liberal democracy that was founded in the 18, early 1800s uh, that just failed. <laughs> like, quite simply, it broke apart. It didn't have a strong enough economy. And when the world is feudalist, and you're uh, 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 this progressive capitalist nat nation, you're going to have a hard time. And I'd say it's the same thing with socialism. And it's why, uh, hopefully, we can go into detail in this later. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but it's why you have these very uh, authoritarian regimes uh, in the name of leftism, uh, of, of communism, and of socialism. It's because we say to them, uh, I mean, it has to do with history, especially with Lenin and, and Stalin. But we said to them, you can't participate in this world economy. You're going to have to do it yourself. Uh, and they said, well, fine. But the only way to do that is by being very harsh. Uh, and yeah, I mean, there's a lot of information there to go into. But I think that's a big aspect of, you know, understanding, well, hey, uh, experiments are a necessary part of the process. I was just thinking that you mentioned trickle-down economics, and I think that's something that yes. like a lot of people like say, but they don't actually know what they're talking about. So if you could talk about that a little bit, I would appreciate it. Well, that. yeah. Uh, come on, we all know it. The free market lie, you know what I mean? The, the It's the idea that a market, a completely free market, can perfectly distribute resources and, and make it so we'll live in a meritocracy uh, and the idea that, well, the enemy is government. I mean, Reagan said it so often. Uh, the enemy is the government. Uh, they call it crony capitalism. It's what the capitalists say is the problem with our current society. It's why there's so much inequality. And you look at it and, and these people, for people that constantly whine about uh, being the only ones who know economics, it's crazy how little they know about economics. And if you ask the, any economist, they'll disagree with them instantly. Uh, you can look at the direct effects that free market economics has had on the country. Uh, coming out of the 1930s, uh, when the Great Depression was kind of at its, at its highest point, at its worst point, uh, we elected FDR. Uh, FDR was not a free market by a person by any means. He introduced a ton of social programs. And you look at how well that uh, impacted the struggling economy. Uh, it built America back up to where it was, uh, back up to a world powerhouse. That was all FDR, and that was not free market economics. And then you look, and Reagan got into power. He deregulates everything. We keep this myth because of the Cold War. Uh, the, the thing is, after we won the Cold War, well, I mean, won the Cold War, uh, that's a bit debatable. But, uh, no, okay, we did win the Cold War. Uh, we, we basically said to ourselves and we started like hyping each other up, look, what look how nice capitalism is. We won, boys, like good job. So we deregulated everything. Uh, Bill Clinton, even a Democrat, uh, deregulated the banks uh, against the, the wishes of 
every progressive, not every progressive person in the office, but people like uh, uh, the Secretary of Labor, I'm blinking on his name, uh, at the time, who actually left the administration. He's like, I can't believe this. I can't believe we're doing this. And now you see, even just eight years after that banking deregulation, uh, the 2008 recession happened uh, because of that irresponsibility by banking. Uh, free market economics is not something that uh, helps everyone. It helps the people at the top. It perpetuates uh, wealth inequality. Uh, free markets, by definition, can't properly distribute things fairly because what happens is, like I said earlier, you get generational wealth. It builds up and builds up. And the thing in capitalism is that with investments, with even something as simple as an index fund, you can multiply your money if you have enough of it you can multiply it at an extremely high rate and it's this kind of dichotomy between the people that are working hard and getting paid minimum wage and the people that don't work nearly as hard yet earn a lot more because of the pure capital that they possess whether it's because of their family or because uh they got lucky with a particular investment or whatever it's it's across the board within the system yeah that was a very good explanation um so you talked a lot about the issues with capitalism. So now do we want to jump in with the fixes for those issues? Yeah, well, sure. Uh, socialism, I think it's important to clarify this. Socialism is, jo- is not just not liking capitalism. Uh, <laughs> uh, I hear a lot of people call themselves democratic socialists and kind of confuse the definition of democratic socialism with social democracy and Marxist Leninism and Marxism alone and communism and all these things. And it's important to clarify uh, what it is we mean by everything. So where capitalism is the private ownership of the means of production, the means of production being, you know, capitalism, uh, quick side note, I hear a lot of conservatives or people that are very anti-socialism. They point out that Marx was very for uh, the abolishment of private property. Uh, he, he said a very famous line, if you could sum up communism in one, in one sentence, it's the abolition of private property. Uh, and the confusion here, I guess, is because in our day-to-day terms, we use private property as anything. This water bottle is my private property, uh, my toothbrush, for example. That's not what we mean by private property. By private property, we mean capital, uh, businesses, uh, farmland. Uh, these are things that allow for the multiplication of wealth without any labor. At most, the labor you're doing is management. And we're not saying that managers shouldn't be fairly compensated for their labor. But what I think is clear that a manager being paid for their labor is different than someone reaping and controlling all the profits and where they go. So where socialism tries to fix this is by uh, democratizing the, me- the, the workplace. Well, within socialism, uh, no one agrees. Uh, there's a lot of infighting. Uh, right now you're seeing the main clash between authoritarian uh, socialism and uh, libertarian socialism. A libertarian being a term that was originally leftist and then got co-opted by the free market people. And now a libertarian is someone who believes in a free market, uh, which is kind of annoying. Uh, but when I say libertarian socialist, I mean someone who, you know, we all know the political compass, you know, left down, left up uh, would be authoritarian. Uh, we're seeing that clash between, well, the old socialism of government-owned business, uh, the government supposed to represent 
the 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 public. So when you say the means of production are public, are owned by the people, uh, the government is saying, okay, we own it, uh, and it, but it's for you guys. Uh, but what I see is so, so fundamentally wrong with this is that these places were not democratic. And I think while the Soviet Union, while Cuba, while even Venezuela now has some good things, I don't think slandering them for everything is very intellectual. I also think that the people that stand uh, those kind of authoritarian regimes don't understand the problems with them. I don't want to live in China. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think many people do. Uh what we need to look at is a new age socialism. Uh, this is the socialism that primarily popped up in the 1960s. Uh, people like Tom Hayden uh, with the Students for a Democratic Society. So it's even the, 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 you know, the hippie movement. Uh, those were very intertwined. The civil rights movement. Martin Luther King, for example, was one of these new age socialists. Uh, what, what this is, is really the democratization of the workplace along with the government. Uh, it means uh, <laughs> workplaces, firms should not be owned by individual owners. Uh, obviously, uh, we've covered why those problems, why this private ownership perpetuates the problems before. Uh, what we advocate for in democratization of the workplace is the idea that, well, since you work in that place, you should get a vote. Uh, more, most importantly, on what to produce, what the company is doing, and how to distribute the profits fairly. Uh, what part of it are you going to set aside to reinvest into the company? Uh, how much are you going to give employees? Do you want to hire more employees to reduce the amount of labor? Uh, this system would end the current system we have, where some people, for the same amount of work in a company, get significantly more than everyone else. Uh, this kind of democracy is one that uh, seeks to make the workplace where everyone spends a lot of time a more fair place, a, a more decentralized organization where people have voices. And I mean, you could have some arguments on the, 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 the viability of this within something like a large company, for example. Uh, but in that case, I mean, you can look at it. How did we solve that? Uh, in, this, in, the, in the 1700s when we were starting up these nations and you have the idea of, well, elected officials, uh, electing your managers, electing representatives, perhaps giving more power to unions uh, so they can negotiate for you. These are ideas that are different between branches of socialism, but that all in all seeks to solve the problem of people not having an equal voice in their life and how their life is handled. Uh, and that's ultimately at the core of socialism. One, one aspect of socialism, of modern socialism, is the focus on what we call worker cooperatives. I don't know, are you guys familiar with uh, worker co-ops? No. Mm, no, not really. <laughs> if you could explain worker, that, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> worker co-ops are worker-owned firms. They're companies that are owned by the workers, democracy. Uh, they existed all the way back in the 1800s. Marx uh, praised these uh, companies because what they allow for is uh, socialized production within capitalism. And ultimately, uh, what you'd see is, is what companies would look like within a socialist economy. And I mean, it's similar to capitalism, uh, except more ethical. Uh, and in fact, more efficient a lot of the time. Uh, when you give a lot of people uh, control over how a company is run, they don't tend to make the same decisions as executives that know their company will be bailed out uh, and so they invest in sub, uh, they, they offer subprime loans uh, at incredibly risky rates. Uh, 
even knowing that there could be a collapse, but they don't care. Uh, that doesn't happen when you have democratic control of a workplace. Uh, decisions uh, tend to be a lot more stable because people have an investment in it and their investment is that they are employed by the company. How successful the company is directly impacts how much they earn and how much uh, well, of the profit they get distributed to them. Uh, whereas now, I mean, you know, uh, there's not much motivation. I mentioned earlier the idea of wage slaves. Uh, no one, people, a lot of people feel helpless. Uh, giving people a stake in their own company is something that time and time again is proved to be an incredible way of making people feel motivated. Studies have proved before that worker co-ops are much more resilient to market changes than regular firms. Uh, they're much more stable and employees feel more motivated to work. Uh, it's just a reality of the system. And that's what we're aiming for with socialism. Yeah, what do you think of like the argument, I guess, that like people, the argument against a lot of de democratic values, which is like people don't know what they're talking about um, and they can't make these kinds of decisions. Well, I mean, a big, a big foundation and a big principle of all these democratic movements, including uh, market socialism, what I'm advocating for, a good way to describe it is market socialism. Uh, a, a big principle of this is the idea of education. Uh, not just education, it's the idea when people have a personal stake in something, they'll learn. Uh, I hear a lot of people say, uh, well, you want us to do our job. And on top of that, research about uh, what to vote on, what would be best for the company. It's like, that's the same things that we hear against democracy within a country. They, some, it I mean, listen, it also depends on the firm. Uh, if you don't like that, if you feel as though your firm uh, is not well suited for that direct democracy system, system, you could go with an elected system. You can go with a, a more hands-off approach to these things. It's solutions that we've come up with before. Uh, and they, I mean, it just comes out of false, uh, uh, false beliefs in saying democracy doesn't work because it does work. If you can run a country efficiently through democracy, uh, you can run a company efficiently through democracy. And it's been done countless times. Uh, actually, here in Spain, there's a, the biggest uh, worker co-op in the world. Uh, it's called Mondragon. Uh, it's from it's up in the Basque country. Uh, which is a province of Spain. Uh, and basically uh, that company started in like the 1970s and now is like a super successful uh, production company. Uh, and ultimately it's what you see. It's, it's the company having these values of democracy and of equal voices and it works, it just works. Uh, and that's kind of what we're going for with market socialism. Uh, the one argument I have heard, and this actually comes from people from Mondragon Two, uh, even early revolutionary and early communists uh, like Rosa Luxemburg, for example, it's not anything fundamental to worker co-ops. It's the current uh, kind of disadvantage that worker co-ops are against, or I mean, have that they were they're in a capitalist system. Uh, Rosa Luxemburg has the perfect quote for this: "That is, uh, in a capitalist system, uh, worker co-ops are the workers are forced to democratically." be the ruthless managers that force them to work super hard. You know what I mean? Uh, that's getting a little better now, especially with more high-skilled labor. Uh, a worker co-op is still quite a lot more ethically than a lot of the companies you see. Uh, 
but the reality is still there until we as a government uh as a people start appreciating and moving towards these systems that better uh fundamentally help and give more power to the people uh it's going to be hard for everyone uh, that's just the reality of the situation you talked a little bit about some I guess you talked a tiny bit about some misconceptions with socialism. Are there others that people should be aware of or have you kind of covered them I think the big one, uh, I mentioned Richard Wolff earlier. Richard Wolff had this great article uh, where he pointed out kind of like uh, where the discussion is at with socialism and a lot of the misconceptions. Uh, Early on uh, during the Cold War discourse, we kind of had this idea of of, well, communism is against two things, free market and private enterprise to produce goods and services. With this in mind, uh, both communists and capitalists agreed. They're like, that's what you believe in. You believe in free market and private enterprise. I don't. I believe in government-owned enterprise and, uh, and planned economies. And they argued, and we saw what happened. I mean, the planned economies failed for a variety of reasons, a little more complex than socialism, bad, or, or public government ownership bad because i mean we do see with things like healthcare even in western europe uh where uh you know a single payer system is extremely useful but the idea is that what we have seen is that with luxury goods a planned economy is not great uh so ultimately what new age socialism what these libertarian socialist movements have been advocating for is the idea of well hey we can still have a market uh Obama said it uh, in, a, in a speech uh, talking about Cuba. He said, well, listen, you've got to look at the benefits of both here. And this is coming from a person who is extremely uh, neoliberal. Uh, he's like, let's look at the benefits with a socialist uh, country and a uh, market country. Uh, again, a bit of a misconception there with the naming. Socialism doesn't necessarily mean anti-market uh, in the modern se- sense. Uh, but he said, well, hey, socialism can be great for giving people more voice, uh, even running some things more efficiently. But the market system creates a lot of wealth. Uh, that's just the reality. It creates even leads to some innovations in a lot of fields, uh, not all fields. Uh, I think that's a bit of a misconception uh, because a lot of you know our current technology is you know uh, things that the government originally invented for like war and then they consume they made it uh, accessible to consumers. But a lot of innovation does come from the market system and what new age socialism tries to accomplish, what this market market socialism tries to accomplish is we'll say, hey, well, this dichotomy doesn't necessarily have to be true. We can be pro-market and still be uh, pro-human, pro-employee. If your GDP is going up and you guys are getting more profit uh, and your company is getting more profit, that does not matter if it's helping no one because the misconception is here is that when when a country's GDP goes up, everyone prospers. And GDP is just not a good metric of how prosperous a country is. You can have people that hoard a lot of the wealth up top. And when people hoard a lot of the wealth up top, even uh, it, it, like especially in a country like the U.S. Uh, with low taxes, that doesn't even mean that the government is getting a lot either. You know what I mean? Like you give them the the government may be getting a little of that tax money, but it's not reaping the benefits in the same way that uh, your actual business owners are getting those benefits. So I think we need to re-examine our system and say, uh, well, hey, maybe a ruthless system does improve GDP a little more in some aspects, uh, at least probably during the transition stage between uh, capitalism and uh, market socialism. 
but that's pointless if it's helping literally no one. Uh, <laughs> like we need to be fair about this. We need to be intelligent. Uh, there's a reason why academia has a hard lean to the left, especially in fields like history, sociology, uh, where you analyze the society you live in and you start to see, well, hey, this is clearly unfair. There's a lot of socialists in those fields because of those reasons, because of that uh, unfairness, uh, inequality that doesn't have to be there that we can fix with these solutions. Uh, well, we've talked a little bit about, like, you've talked a little bit about communism and, uh, like, just to clarify, like, what the difference between communism and socialism is, like, because a lot of people complete it. And, yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, socialism is more of an economic system. Again, the means of production uh, are owned by the workers or by the people, uh, whereas communism is just sort of a description of a of a, uh, of a society. Uh, it's, a, it's a stateless uh classless and moneyless society. Uh, this is kind of what the goal of, uh, of socialism is, uh, at least in the long term. Uh, market socialism does not accomplish those things. Uh, it's not moneyless, it's not classless, and it's not uh, uh, stateless. Uh, but it does get us on the way to a more fair society. I know those ideas of communism sound pretty radical to people, and fair enough, very different and what we have now. Uh, but when you analyze it more from a, a philosophical perspective, uh, you start to see that, well, it does have value on its own. And while we don't have to go that radical by any means right now, uh, we should keep it in mind then, well, hey, if we get to this economy where there's no more scarcity, there's no more abundance, uh, we could actually start to look at implementing some of these more utopian ideas. Uh, and I mean, that's important to, to see. Uh, a big misconception, I guess, with that communist socialism kind of uh, uh, correlation or, or, you know, people confuse the two uh, is the idea that the Soviet Union or China were, are communist. They're not communist. They haven't even claimed to be communist. What they claim to be is socialist. Uh, each have their own little spin on it. But ultimately, I would even argue that they're not even socialist. They're state capitalist. They're especially China. Well, Soviet Union, they don't exist anymore, but uh, China in particular it runs like capitalism. They have investors in the exact same way, uh, except the state has taken a huge role in that control of industry. Uh, do not confuse what China does with socialism, whether socialism is planned or not. China's economy is not even planned socialism. It's, again, state capitalism. Uh, they call it <laughs> they call it socialism with Chinese characteristics uh, in the in their socialist theory. Uh, but really what the colloquial term, the real term that economists use to describe it is state capitalism. So I think it's important to clarify that uh, when we talk about socialism, as far as historical examples for something like market socialism, you have to understand that uh with something like that, it's a lot more bottom down. You get a similar effect to that of early capitalism, where I mentioned you have a lot of failed experiments and it's not really allowed to survive. I think the most notable example of it, the most successful, well, the only, one of the only examples of it, of, of a market socialist economy was Spain. Uh, right after the civil war started in 1936, uh, 
we have to understand, I guess I should do a bit of explaining about uh, Spanish history. I would guess that you guys aren't too familiar with it. Uh, Unfortunately, the US does not yeah. include Spanish history yes. as part of the book. <laughs> yes. uh, They include nothing but themselves and yeah. only the good parts. <laughs> only the good parts. Uh, within Spain, uh, you have this long history of, you know, monarchy, I think. Hopefully, most people know that. Uh, where it gets kind of murky for a lot of people is understanding what happened in the 20th century, right? At the beginning of the 20th century, uh, you still have the monarch. And eventually, uh, you get, you know, the first republic, uh, democratic republic, uh, well, kind of fails. It does fail. Monarchy takes back. Uh, then from 1921 till 1931, around that time span. I'm, I'm a little murky with my dates, but you know, more or less. Uh, uh, a dictator takes power of the country. Uh, I think his name was uh, Miguel Primo de Rivera. Uh, I don't know him that well. He was a dictator for 10 years. I do know his son a lot more uh, because uh, he led the Spanish Falange, which is a fascist group that is still around. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, I, I know a few phalangists actually. Uh, Funky. Yeah, rough. Uh, <laughs> anyway, anyway, what's important to understand is that 1931, uh, the, the dictatorship goes down and another republic uh, is instituted. And this is the Second Republic. And this is very important in Spanish history. Uh, between 1931 and 1936, you have this extremely uh, uh, chaotic era where you know you have the super left-wing uh parties and the super right-wing parties fighting it out and each have controls for a few years and eventually in 1936 uh the left-wing coalition uh wins the election uh this is Pesoy and uh the communist party as well as the anarchist party the cnt fai uh and uh what happens is the 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 right wing tries to do a coup uh, well, they do do a coup, but it does fail. Uh, so what happens is half the country splits off and joins with them and half the country joins with the left wing. Uh, and you have this gruesome civil war. Uh, but meanwhile, while this is all happening in the in the northeast of the country in Catalonia, uh, the CNT FAI, the anarchist organization, uh, takes care of take, that's where they get the most votes. So that's where they uh, take control. And what's actually not well known about this, and I actually see this a lot, uh, is the, ironically enough, uh, kind of seems random, but uh, George Orwell, a famous writer, 1984, uh, <laughs> commonly cited as an anti-communist because of 1984, he fought during those years in Catalonia for uh, a, a socialist group. Uh, when when you analyze what happened in Catalonia, you have the, you look at, two main groups taking charge this is extremely important to understand, right? You have uh, a coalition between the CNTFAI, uh, which is the anarchist organization, and you have uh, the POUM. Uh, now, what's interesting is that the POUM is not the same as the uh, of PCE, which is the, you know, Partido Comunista de España. Uh, that's the Stalin, that's the Soviet Union party, whereas the POUM is the anarcho-communist, the libertarian socialist uh, party of Spain. Uh, and what you see during those few years in Catalonia of that uh, POUM and CNT 
FAI control is an implementation of anarcho of, of libertarian socialism uh, within the, the region. And what's amazing is that during an active war, uh, they managed to run a really, really good economy uh, with a lot of happy people, a lot of social benefits, worker owned organizations. That's what you got during those few years. And I mean, it feels kind of weird to say, oh, it was successful when, I mean, you guys haven't heard of it. Uh, but the reality is that it was quite successful. Uh, the most bad rap it gets is simply for their method. Uh, the, 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 the Spanish Civil War was extremely bloody. They, they, I mean, they killed people. They burned churches and all that. Uh, and, and then the right also, the right wing also did their thing and murdered a lot of people. Uh, so that's the main criticism they get. But when you look at economics, what they did in Catalonia during those three years was pretty good. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, uh, and actually before Catalonia got invaded, uh, before uh, Spain, Republican Spain lost the fight against fascist Spain, uh, what you saw is the Stalinist, the aforementioned the PCE, uh, they murdered <laughs> the anarchists in, in Catalonia. They killed them all. Uh, the Soviet Union has historically been against libertarian socialism uh, and against anarchism, uh, which is, again, kind of close to what I believe in. Like, I'm an anarcho-socialist, a libertarian socialist. Uh, and they murdered them, and uh, the economy was taken under control uh, by the centralized government, uh, the PCE, under Stalin's uh, uh, control tried to take more power so that if Republican Spain won the war, they would essentially be a puppet of the Soviet Union. Uh, and yeah, that's kind of bad. That was sad. <laughs> Definitely, I do not like the Soviet Union. Uh, I think that's important to clarify. And I think it's important to clarify that uh, the differences between these two socialist movements of libertarian socialism and authoritarian socialism and how, you know, on the side of libertarian socialism, you have plenty of smart people, uh, namely Bernie Sanders, who, while is right now most, mostly a social democrat, my personal opinion is that I think he's a crypto socialist. Uh, he's a democratic, he calls himself a democratic socialist because he is a democratic socialist. Uh, he used to, well, for sure, in the past, he was a democratic socialist. He used to be a lot more openly socialist, talking about uh, worker firms, uh, uh, you know, worker owned firms and all that. Uh, and he still advocates for 20% of all firms to be worker owned, which is pretty amazing. Uh, so yeah, that's mainly the, the person we think to now. But I think another organization within the US is the DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America. And these are the organizations that more accurately represent mine and a lot of new age socialist uh, thinkers. Uh, and if I if you if, if if listeners could leave the podcast with one thing learned, it's the idea of this new socialism that's coming in, uh, co-opted by a lot of smart uh, people that are passionate and care about bringing power and bringing democracy uh, towards everyone. Yeah, I, I like my one thing is like, what do you think? personally would be good steps to get like further towards the the goal of like a more utopian society more perfect society um yeah well i think i i'm very happy to get that question because a big thing a big part of what i do is electoralism i care a lot about not just larping or about a revolution or about getting to this point 
but about actually trying to make meaningful change. I think this is a big problem within leftist spaces. And it's the reason why we don't have it, despite the numbers, we don't have as much success as the fascists and the right wing and the far right uh, in unifying and making and getting to a common goal. Uh, there's a lot of infighting uh, and there's a lot of people who are so dissatisfied with bourgeois democracy that they're like, I'm not voting. Uh, I'm just going to wait for a revolution. Fantastic. Peace out. Uh, and I think this is extremely harmful. And I think the, the approach of uh, the Democratic Socialists of America and those of, like Bernie Sanders, AOC, uh, despite their policies that they're actively pushing, being social democracy, which is still capitalism, uh, despite the fact that they're compromising and, pro and proposing social democracy instead of full uh, socialism, we need to support them. Uh, the first step to making change in a Western democracy uh, it's not a revolution. We're not going to get a revolution in the U in the U.S. anytime soon. And what people don't realize, especially leftists, about revolution is that they're bloody. They're not good. They're very bad. It's hard to build up a country afterward. And while I think that my workplace democracy would be very difficult to get past Congress, for example, uh, and violent action may be something that we look at. Uh, right now, we need to put a lot of our focus into reform. Uh, reformism. Uh, we need to start building a pathway to socialism. We need to start uh, educating people. We need to definitely uh, collaborate. I'm not a Bernie or Buster. I think that's one of the worst things you can do. Uh, the people that got disappointed that Bernie lost and just didn't vote for Biden. And I think that first off, we do need to acknowledge within electoralism, there's a lot of things to talk about. But uh, one of those big things being uh, to move forward, we don't only have to support people like Bernie and AOC and the DSA. Oh, we need to fight unite against going backwards uh a lot of what the republican party does uh and especially the far right aspect of the the republican party you know your trumps uh your proto-fascists if not a lot of them fascists already yeah uh, that direction is not something that uh we should go down and i think while it is tempting to just sit at home and insult them and not vote and insult everyone and insult the Democratic Party because they do dumb things and the Republican Party. There needs to be a focus on compromising at times and moving forward. Uh, so, yeah, uh, as far as actual policies that I support towards moving forward, uh, social democracy is something that uh, we could definitely move towards right now. Uh, we need to get more people like AOC and Bernie elected. Uh, we need to push towards more uh, equal aspects of, of society. Definitely, definitely, definitely uh, soon we need to pass Medicare for all. Uh, I don't I don't think that that will happen anytime soon. I think the people trying to force the vote right now are pretty stupid uh, because it's not going to get passed and we need to focus on right now getting people elected. Uh, but yeah, it's it's those kind of policies that will eventually put us in a position to say, well, hey, what if we go from uh fixing the the problem after the fact you know because that's what social democracy it's you maintain the kind of inherent flaws with capitalism and you try to fix it after the fact with high taxes and all of these things which are are pretty good uh i'd rather be living in norway uh than the you well no let's i i'd love the u.s uh but i'd rather I personally have a would US... rather be in norway <laughs> <laughs> I'd, ra I'd rather have a U.S. government that acts more like Norway than one that acts like it currently does right now.
Yeah. Uh, and 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 we need to move towards that. And once we're in that position, then we could advocate for more fundamental changes to kind of fix a lot of these problems that are underlying in the system as a whole that I talked about earlier. You know. Uh, well, I mean, I could talk a little a little bit about. That. I talked about authoritarian socialism within, within compared to libertarian socialism, uh, but a big one I think that I didn't mention much is anarchism. Uh, anarchism often gets the rap of like you know uh graffiti and chaos and all of that and i think that's fun and all the you know the <laughs> the the aesthetics of that are are fun enough graffiti's uh, pretty fun not gonna lie <laughs> <laughs> but but the economic aspect of of anarchism is the one that is actually valuable uh and not any not even just the economic aspects of anarchism because a lot of practical ways of implementing anarchism uh are through socialism, are through bottom-down socialism instead of top-down socialism. It's, it's again, uh, market socialism. It's keeping it open, uh, being decentralized in how we reform the system. Uh, that, those are key aspects of how anarchism would be achieved. Uh, and I think even though maybe anarchism, I'm not an anarchist, uh, I'm a libertarian socialist, uh, I think a lot of what anarchism preaches is something that is extremely vital uh, to socialism as a whole and the socialism that I would want to implement in the country. Uh, so, yeah. So uh, anarchist ideologies, I think the idea of, 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 okay, there's, it's kind of a bit complicated, but there's this one guy, uh, Max Stirner uh, from the, you know, 19th century uh, who wrote a lot about, he was kind of considered to be one of the early anarchists, uh, at least, he had something called ego anarchism, uh, very individualist. Uh, while a lot of those economic apply applications aren't by themselves great, uh, at least in my opinion, I feel like, again, socialism would be something a bit more valuable. The actual content of what he says is something that even Marx agreed with. You know what I mean? The idea of, well, maybe a state isn't something great to impose on people. Uh, one of the big things was the idea of, of he called them spooks of the state religion. Uh, well, I'm not anti-religious, but uh, these concepts of uh, societal systems and power structures where people do have to uh, work for the pleasure and ideology of others instead of for themselves. And I feel like that's something, uh, the idea of individual liberation, that's something that has to be uh fundamental to any socialist uh movements we take uh and that's why again china bad china <laughs> yeah no <nah. laughs> yeah that was really good there was a yeah. lot of information that i did not know yes. in there yeah uh, a bit monologue <laughs> but i mean <laughs> hey i i know that there's a lot of information when it comes to this kind of this field uh, so sometimes you do just have to talk for a really long time and get a lot of information out there. Uh, but I feel like the first step is education. And then after that, uh, the conversations and the dialogues you can have with people are super valuable and super interesting uh, to have. If people wanted to start researching more about this stuff, do you have like, we can put links in and stuff, but do you yeah, have sure. like I'll, I'll, basic well, places? Because I know I was trying to do some research last yeah. night, <laughs> last minute. <laughs> I was like, uh, <laughs> there's well, a lot of information out there. <laughs> yes, a lot of it. Uh, it's hard to pick just one 
place off the top, but I think a good, I mean, there's a lot of literature, uh, but I think a good place to start is just sort of getting up to date with, uh, again, organizations like the Democratic Socialist of America, the DSA. I think those are super valuable resources to sort of hop into the idea of leftism, to hop into current advocacy, what policies they currently stand for, what philosophical ground do they stand on. I feel like it's designed so that, you know, your typical everyday people can go in there, learn, uh, you know, go down the rabbit hole and every day come out learning a little bit more about what we're talking about because it's not easy. <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Also, I think I mentioned him a couple of times, so I should uh, uh, go uh, mention him one more time. Uh, Richard Wolf, uh, great dude. Uh, <laughs> a lot of his takes uh, his positions are great i think he has done a lot of work to sort of introduce the idea of uh workplace democracy and socialism to new people and i think that's a good place to start as well if you're trying to sort of get into uh the idea awesome thank you yeah so thanks for joining us it was yeah yeah it was yeah it was great yeah thank you for having me on yeah Hey folks, you're nearing the end of the podcast. This is a reminder that this month's book is Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell. You know the drill, read along this month to know what we're talking about. You can contact us via email at theteensagedpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at teens underscore aged. Thanks for listening in. This has been the Teens Age Podcast with Alex and Kyler.